All right, Merry Christmas, everyone. Feliz Navidad. Today is a, a wonderful day because, well, we don't know historically if today was it, but 2,000 years ago, approximately, God sent his only son, his only begotten son into the world. And he brought, and he, and he sent Jesus, uh, and he sent him as a helpless little baby. Jesus didn't come showing up with a crown on his head, with a big old staff in his hand, with a sword on the other. Actually, Jesus will show up like that. But that's not his first coming, that's his second coming. At his first coming, you see, a lot of prophecies were made about the coming of Christ. Let me get on more mic. A lot of prophecies were made about Christ. In the Old Testament. And what the Jews did was they mixed up some of the prophecies about the second coming of the Messiah with the first coming. And so they expected Jesus to come and reign with governmental power and authority to sit on the throne of David and to reign and rule. And see, some of these prophecies, it's not that they're not true. Is that they come? They pertain to Christ's second coming, not to his first. At his first coming, Jesus came in a slimy, mildew-filled manger, humble, helpless. I mean, if one of the horses started acting up, I mean that would be done. Jesus would have been done. A little baby. <laughs> oh no! Our baby broke his neck. I mean. Jesus was helpless when he came into the world. But praise the Lord for God's sovereignty, right? Because, you know, God's sovereignty made sure those horses didn't go crazy. Or whatever animals were up in there. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Told you a couple uh, a couple weeks ago. I try to shatter the Aristotelian view of God, uh, that God is this perfect being, untouchable, so perfect and holy. He cannot relate to us. He cannot speak to us. He cannot touch us because he's so perfect and holy. That's Aristotle's view of God, and it has affected a lot of Western Christianity. And I was trying to biblically just shatter that kind of view. And if you have any re remains of that view, I want to encourage you guys read your Bible more, because in the Bible we don't have a God that's just holy. And pure and high and perfect and untouchable. I mean, he is all those things, but he's, he's not at this place where he is out of touch with his creation. Instead, we have doctrines of the incarnation. And that's why we have a Christmas. Because 2,000 years ago, God chose not to just stay high on that throne and look upon the problem of sin and upon man's sin on the world all the sin and death and destruction that was going on and say, I can't touch that because I'm holy and perfect. But God chose to say, you know what? I see it. I see the suffering of my people. And you know what? In my love, I'm going to step into that problem. I'm going to step into my creation. And God condescends through the incarnation. And he comes to us born as a little helpless baby. Surrounded by social stigma. 
But nobody believes Mary's story. Right. Holy Spirit impregnated you. Where's precedence for that in the scriptures? Right, Mary. You know, and Jesus ran around as a little boy with that kind of social stigma. You know? Perhaps some of the struggles you went through as you were growing up. Perhaps you were a illegitimate child. Is that you, young? Is that you, young, back there? Oh, snap. What's up, bro? One of our good friends from Australia. My brother, young. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, man. It's like, forgot that I was preaching. Forgot I was preaching for a second. Now we got some visitors here today. Hey, where I? I forgot where I was. Let's go to Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6. Let's read this verse together. Uh, one, two, three, go. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This prophecy talks about a child being born. And that this child, the government will be upon his shoulder. And that this child would have many names. He will be called many things. Wonderful counselor. Everlasting father. Mighty God. What kind of child it's called Mighty God. Man, your daughter is so cute. That Your daughter, I can't even think of that example. I'm just kind of off on that. All right, anyway, who will be ever called Mighty God? But this son, this child that's given, this prophecy said he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's quite the reputation. If you haven't figured it out, this prophecy is talking about Jesus. It's not talking about John the Baptist. It's not talking about the Apostle Paul. It's not talking about Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Charles T. Russell or Reverend Moon. It's talking about Jesus. There's only one person that can lay claim to these prophecies. And today I want to focus on Prince of Peace. Turn to your neighbor and say, peace to you. Peace. Let's be, shal- Let's be Hebrew. Shalom. Shalom. You know, our faith, the Christian faith, the Christian faith is founded in believing that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And this Jesus that we serve, he is known as the Prince of Peace. Now, that's what the Old Testament prophecy has said, but let me ask you a question. Is that how you know him? You know Jesus, but do you know the Prince of Peace? Because that's who he really is. 
But who are you really serving? The prince of fear? The prince of anxiety? The prince of panic? Jesus is not called by those things. That is not his nature. Jesus is called the prince of peace. In the Gospels, John chapter 14, verse 27. This is a favorite verse of mine because my college mentor always mentioned it. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Oh, that's the Prince of Peace right here, Hawking. <laughs> not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Prince of Peace in the flesh says 2,000 years ago to the disciples, and those words continue to ring true today. Those words give us instruction, it gives us hope. It gives us comfort today. And those words are saying to you, the Prince of Peace says to you, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You know, because the Prince of Peace has given you peace, The world can't take away your peace. You ever think of that, just that simple concept? If the world didn't give it to you, the world can't take it from you. We, have, we can easily relate this to concepts like everlasting life. Think about it like that. The world didn't give you everlasting life. The devil didn't give you everlasting life. Therefore... The devil can't take away everlasting life from you. It is a gift that is irrevocable. It is a gift that is ill-stealable. <laughs> Unstealable. <laughs> Distealable, if there's a word. The devil didn't give it to you. The devil can't take it. The world didn't give it to you. The world can't take it. Everlasting life. So easy, right? But when it comes to peace, us Christians, we can't seem to quite make that connection. Jesus says, I give you peace. And you're like, oh, yes, Jesus, thank you. On Sunday, you're like, thank you, Lord, for your peace. And you start to think clearly. And you start to feel uh, stress just coming off of your physical body. Your heartbeat goes back to normal. Your stomach Starts to feel less heartburn. I mean, you just feel the peace. The peace has such healing qualities. And then you go back to work on Monday. And then your, your boss says, Brenda, come into my office right now. Where is the paper I asked you to do? Can't you do anything right? And all of a sudden, the peace that we had on Sunday seems to take wings and just fly away. And, and then you just start getting down on yourself. 
And then the boss is just getting to you and you start to hate your boss in your heart. And the devil's getting in because, you know, the devil, devil is, is the author of hatred. You know, he, he wants you to mur- murderous thoughts you start having of your boss. And then your coworker comes and starts irking you and irking you and talking to you about stuff that has nothing to do with anything. And you start getting murderous thoughts for your coworker as well. And you start getting irritated. You start getting distracted. And the things that you had hoped to do during the week, you just forget about because you can't even think clearly. The peace is gone. The joy is gone. And then your body just upsets stomach. Pimples start breaking out. (laughs) Hair starts falling out. But here's a little truth. If the Prince of Peace is residing with you, and if the Prince of Peace is reigning in your heart, then you have to understand that he gives you a peace that nobody can take from you. The only reason you lose your peace is because you allow it to go. The devil doesn't have the authority to take it. He deceives you into letting it go, to forfeiting it. To abandon it. Now let me let me share with you in my vulnerability that I struggle in a very particular area of my life when it comes to peace. <laughs> I know and I trust that the Prince of Peace is with me at all times. But when I get behind the wheel of a car, I begin to serve a different prince. It's a prince I've been familiar with for most of my life. A prince that I learned to get familiar with, I met in the city of Philadelphia. A bigger prince I met when I went to the city of New York. This is prince, the prince of road rage. Now, for those who don't drive, you don't understand my struggle. For those who did not grow up in an aggressive driving environment where you had crazy drivers cut you off, almost caused accidents, or even caused you to get into an accident, you don't understand my struggle. But let me tell you right now, it ain't easy. It is a real struggle. And... uh you know, it's harder for me because I also, you know, grew up in an urban environment and uh, I got into a lot of fist fights, you know. And when you get into a lot of fist fights, you get into a pattern of thinking that the rule for life is to never let anyone cross you. If you let somebody cross you and you are you are you don't do anything about it and you're just a little chump and you're just a little uh, scared, little coward about it then your life is over. You're just going to get bullied around. Everyone's going to take advantage of you. So you you start to get this rule of life. Never let anybody cross me. And so, man, I learned that early on when I was in fourth or fifth grade. There were these uh, three um, Korean-American. Actually, they grew up in South America. There's Korean brothers called the Hwang brothers. The Hwang brothers. And... uh, I used to go over and play Nintendo with them because, you know, they were older than me. I looked up to them. And I thought I could trust them. 
I was like in fourth grade. One day, the Wang brothers decide to have a little fun with their newfound friend. And so they go, you know what? I want to see a fight because Philadelphia people love seeing a fist fight. I'll tell you right now. It doesn't matter. Even if, you, even if, it's like, if you're a mom and it's your son fighting, right? Like you, you, you like, you're like, let me see the fight. Let me see the fight. You wouldn't get in there. Don't touch my son. No, in Philadelphia, it's like, son, you better fight back. Hit him in the head. Hit him in the nose. Like Philadelphia people are crazy. They love watching fights. It's really weird. And the Huang brothers were like, I want to see a fight. They said, all right. Well, here's this uh, new guy. Here's this young kid. He's never been in a fight before. Let's teach him how to fight. And let's watch him fight. How will we make him fight? He's just an innocent, peaceful, young, young Korean child. Just learning how to speak English. How's, how are we going to make him fight? So, easy. We will lie to him. And tell him that a white boy named Sean that lives down the street says something mean about his mama. <laughs> Real easy, right? So the Wang brother, I'm playing Nintendo. They're like, yo, 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 suck young. That's my Korean name, right? Yo, suck young. Yo, you know what white boy Sean down the street said about your mom? I was like, what, 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 what huh? Why, why would he talk about my mom? Does he know my mom? What, what do you mean? You know, I, I, it, it was not within my grid. Why, why would anyone talk about my mom? But then they started saying all these like really bad things that he had said about my mom. And he said that he wanted to fight me and he hates my guts. And I was like, why? Why would he, why would he ever hate me like that? But at the same time, I started getting angry. And the more they started talking, I, was, I think I was getting more angry because they were disturbing my Nintendo game. But I didn't discern that. The, the anger just kind of transferred over to Sean. And I said, all right, let's go looking for Sean. So the Wayne brothers are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They get, start getting hyped up. <laughs> so foolish, man. Such foolishness. And they take me out on the street, right? And we start looking for Sean. I don't even know what he looks like. I just know he's white. I think I've seen him in my class, but I can't quite remember. There's Sean right there. There's Sean. There's Sean. There's one, one guy. His name is Daniel. He's the youngest one. He's like really kind of eclectic. He was like, there's Sean. There's Sean. Come on. He's like, remind me of Will Ferrell a little bit. It's going crazy. So my heart started skipping. I started briskly walking, and I just started running towards Sean. And then Sean, he didn't run away. He just stood there. And so I started slowing down. <laughs> Says, Sean, why are you talking about my mama? And Sean says some expletives. I wasn't talking about your mama. So I was like, okay, uh, that's done then. <laughs> this, this is my first fist fight. Come on. I'm thinking it's done. It's finished. And he goes, but he, yeah, this is what Philadelphia people say. He said, but what if I did? What you going to do about it? 
So I said, I, I, I'll mess you up. I'll, I'll punch you. And he's like, he's like, oh, yeah? And I was like, yeah. And before I could say yeah, he socked me in my stomach, knocked the wind out of me, and then pulled him, pummeled me with all these wimpy little punches on my head. But my head was really big, so he, <laughs> he hit me with every punch. And then I, I just had the wind knocked out on me, and I just kind of went, Ooh! and I totally missed. <laughs> and then what I did was what any Asian kid on the black streets of Philadelphia would do. Now I started making Bruce Lee noises. <laughs> Get in my karate kid stance. Come on, round two right here. And when Sean saw that, all right, everybody was watching karate movies at that time. Sean just started running. <laughs> I'm not sticking around to find out if this guy knows karate. He started running. And then I felt like, I felt like, yeah, let me chase him down. So I started running, but I wasn't as fast as him. So he just ran, outran me, and, and that, was, that was my first fist fight. And what the Huang brothers had successfully done was, they got this spirit of, like, rage inside of me. Because even though it wasn't, like, a big deal fight after that, you know what my thoughts were? I wanted to burn down Sean's house. <laughs> no, I'm serious. There's a lot of arson in Philadelphia. And I'm telling you, a lot of people, a lot more people think about it before. You know, they don't actually do it, but a lot of people think about it. And I was like, let me go find out where he lives so I could burn that house down. I'll teach that white boy. Anyway, I mean, <clears throat> what ended up happening was, like, that started me in getting into more fist fights. And so later that year, when uh, the black bullies of the school started to bully me around, I didn't, I didn't stink for it. I started sticking up for it. I stick, start sticking up for myself, sticking up for my friends, a lot of my Asian friends, especially the Korean fobs that just came off the airplane. Actually, I didn't stick up for them ever. <laughs> actually, I'm guilty. I, I actually think I, I pushed some of them to get into their first fist fights as well. This is self-perpetuating. This is evil. What the Huang brothers did to me. Evil hang brothers. Man. This wasn't Pastor David Huang, by the way, from Jubilee. All right. It's another set of Huang brothers who actually lived in Philly. And um, anyway, I mean, me and Sean, we, we had this, uh, we had this uh, fist fight relationship throughout until eighth grade. I mean, we got into so many fights. And, and uh, I can say proudly that toward the end of eighth grade, I had the upper hand. I mean, I beat him up, when, and I did it without getting suspended. I would beat him up, and I will run away, just like he did to me. <laughs> so, anyway, no, I, um, I suspect that it was some of these incidents that got this, like, spirit of, like, anger. And uh, I noticed when I went to Australia, it was a lot worse. Uh, the Australian boys, man, they are filled with rage. I can't say I was... 
I, I serve the Prince of Rage. I think it's more like the Prince of like anger, road rage, but not rage. But I mean, I, I met young brothers there. They gave me their testimony because they wanted deliverance because they realized there was a demon spirit that was controlling their life. I mean, type of things that they would do. And it wasn't just one story. I mean, it was several stories. You know, I realized, man, them, them young boys there, they need, some, they need some shepherding because they need to be shepherded out of that, that serving that prince of rage. But let me tell you right now, man, I struggle still. The remnants of this Huang brother experience remains with me in my driving. And I'm just being vulnerable. I, 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 I'll speak faith. Don't worry. I speak the language of faith. But I'm just telling you, confessing to you, that it's a struggle. So if you ever see me on the road, all right, you ever see my car, you will never see a little little Jesus fish on the back, all right? <laughs> never see that. <laughs> I have been ashamed of some of the things that I've done on the road. Anyway, Uh, whatever area in which you struggle to keep your peace, we need to invite the Prince of Peace to come in and reign. And, you know, and Erin and becomes like Holy Spirit to me. Whenever she's in the car, she doesn't really, she's not really able to stop me, but she does minimize some of that, some of that rage, some of that road rage. Anyway, I'm not proud of it. Um, it is something that I definitely struggle with. But, you know, I realized that, you know, that's an area that I need to invite Jesus in and just say, Jesus, I want you to reign in this car. I want you to be the prince of peace in this car. Because I too easily let some crazy Ajashi taxi driver steal my peace. But here's the thing. He never gave it to me. Why should I let him take it? And the thing about peace is the peace of God. The peace of God is, uh, it's gangster. The peace of God is not like, like just fluffy little cute peace. Like the absence of conflict type of peace. The peace of God is gangster. Uh, it says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition... Present with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, when you don't have the Prince of Peace guarding your heart and mind, what happens to your heart and mind? It gets filled with fear, it gets filled with anger, it gets filled with anxiety. And what does that do? It produces stupid actions. Foolish behavior, hurtful behavior, behavior that is out of the flesh, not born out of faith, out of the Holy Spirit. And what we need to do is, whenever we get anxious about anything, we just got to do what this verse says. You know, I've memorized this verse from when I was a young man, and it has saved me from a pattern of anxiety that I'm constantly helping young people get delivered from all the time. And I, I realized the only reason I never had to really struggle with anxiety 
for most of my life is because I memorized this verse when I was really young. And because I memorized it, it was always turning in my head. And so whenever anxiety would hit, I would just recite the verse and then think, let me believe the verse and let me now apply the verse. So what would I do whenever I get anxious about anything? You know, when I was a young kid, I got into a lot of car accidents, small ones. A couple of them were my fault. The others weren't. Okay, but I got, I got to get into these car accidents. And the first thing you want to do when you get into a car accident is panic. You've never been in a car accident? Let me tell you right now. You get into a car accident, you're going to want to panic. And it was in those times I will remember Philippines 4-6. I remember one time it was raining out in uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I was driving my car, and I sped out of one of the um, Staples parking lots, Staples uh, store. I sped out, and I didn't see this black car in front of me, and I just all over his bumper. And there was a, a young man and his girlfriend in the car. And so it's raining. And so I stayed in my car. <laughs> so he comes out, he's drenched, and he's like knocking on my window. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I totally did not see you. I'm so sorry. And the guy is like fuming upset. And then his girlfriend it comes out to my passenger side, and she's knocking on the window. And I'm just like, oh, snap. I'm, I'm just, I'm in trouble. I'm in tr- how am I, I going to get myself out of this? And in New Jersey, it's, uh, the highest insurance premiums in all of America is in New Jersey. All right? I'm averaging already $2,500 a year on basic coverage. So I'm like, man, I don't want my insurance to go up. So whenever I got into little fender benders, I have this, like, gift to do it outside of insurance. And it always ends up being cheaper, right? And so I, I'm, I'm like thinking, man, how am I going to get out this one? And I wrecked his bumper, right? But at that moment, I remember Philippines 4, 6, and I started to pray, do not be anxious about anything. I'm not going to be anxious about this right now, Lord. I'm going to ignore this crazy woman that's knocking on my window. <laughs> and right now, I thank you. I thank you. And the next day was vision conference. It was a campus crusade conference that I was helping to run. Now I'm in charge of the media team, and I'm supposed to do all this video work. And so I'm in a hurry. I need to get going. But I just said, Lord, I thank you. I thank you right now. Within this accident, I thank you. It's my fault. But I, I, I thank you. I thank you that it's raining. I thank you for everything. I thank you. I thank you that I'm healthy. I, I, I just thank you. You know, because you got to practically do some Thanksgiving. And then I said, Lord, I petition you right now. Help me to get out of this situation and to settle it outside of insurance so my premiums don't go up. I pray specifically like that. And I said, Lord, may work, may move quickly so I can, I can get back to doing my conference work. All right? Pray just like that. All right? I kid you not, right? Police driver pulls up right behind me. Starts yelling at me, right? Now, so it looks like my prayer didn't work because he starts yelling. He's like, what are you doing? Don't leave your car out in here in the middle of the road. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And at that, you know, Fort Lee and Palisades Park, uh, the Caucasian cops, they have a reputation for being racist toward uh, Korean-Americans. There's so many Koreans there, and uh, they're not giving up their seats of authority in all the police districts. So, you know, the way they respond is there's a lot of racism there. So I'm thinking, like, this guy's racist, and he wants to, like, bite my head off, you know. And I said, I'm sorry, officer. I'm sorry, officer. And so I start driving my car off the road. And it's, and my wheel is like, like digging into the 
metal that's coming out my uh, bumper, and you know my, my bumper got jacked up. And I pulled in, and then the police driver, a uh, police officer, says, "You know what happened?" You know, and I said, "Well, I um I came out of the parking lot and I hit this other guy, and so it's my fault." And so he said, "All right, okay, let me talk to the other driver." Right? He goes and talks to the other driver. I kid you not. Five minutes later, right, this other driver comes up, knocks on my window, right, and he says, um, I have an expired driver's license. <laughs> Whatever we do, we got to settle this outside of insurance. So, <laughs> can you please help me out? Because... The police officer said, if we go through insurance or go through your insurance, he's going to also write me a ticket. But he said he'll let me go if we're able to come to a settlement. So I said, let me see your driver's license. <laughs> anyway, man, I... That was my mistake. I jacked it up. I was driving carelessly. I caused the accident. God didn't say, ah, man, you, you knucklehead, you got into an accident. You take care of yourself. You'll fix it yourself. God, you know, God's not like that. I admitted. I said, Lord, it's my fault. I'm sorry. And I just claimed the verse. I said, your prince of peace is with me. And that with that peace, there was that clarity. And as I prayed with that clarity... God started to move circumstances in my favor. All I know is I went to vision conference the next day and I did not skip a beat. All right. And my car got fixed by the end of the conference. You know, God had taken care of everything. The peace of God is, uh, it's not just fluffy. It's gangster. It's gangster because it says here in Philippians 4, 7, that the peace of God actually guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Meaning that when you petition God with thanksgiving and you obey this verse and the peace of God, you allow the peace of God to come. When the peace of God comes on your mind and in your heart, it actually guards your heart and mind. Why does it need to guard it? Because your heart and mind are constantly being bombarded by the enemy's lies, by attacks of fear Panic, anxiety, anger, whatever have you. Satan's constantly bombarding you with attacks. What does the peace of God do? Oh, oh, it's another attack. No, the peace of God is like, um, I saw a black preacher once give this analogy. He, he said, uh, he picked out two big football looking dudes, right? He said, you young man, get up. You young man, get up. Come stand next to me. All right, and they're, they're like much taller, much bigger, and they're standing next to this black preacher. They said, wherever I walk, I want you to walk. So he starts walking down the aisle, and these two young men are right next to him, walking down the aisle. And he starts walking back down the, uh, up the aisle, and he starts walking right next to him, up the aisle. And he said, you see this? You see these, you see these young men? They're so big, they could be my bodyguard. But what the Bible promises is, when you get hit with anxiety or you're tempted to get anxious, it says, do not get anxious. But with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. 
just like these two young men are guarding me right now. Wherever I go, they're going to go. If I hire them as my bodyguard, they're not going to allow some foolish, crazy man to come up and attack me. And in that same way, the peace of God is like, they're like bodyguards. They're like Kevin Costner. And I will always love you. Mac. I don't understand why they chose Kevin Costner. They should have chose like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the bodyguard. And you see Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, that makes sense. Kevin Costner, bodyguard. Why? How is he a bodyguard? Anyway, man, the peace of God's got muscles. The peace of God is like, is, is like a bodyguard, like a bouncer at a club. You don't get past him. When Satan does his foolish work. Peace of God takes Satan and throws him out the house. You ever been to a club and the young man getting rowdy or something like that? Bouncer comes around. Bouncer says, hey, 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 right here. Young man's like, oh. oh. <laughs> Bouncer says, you out, man, you out. You don't, Bouncer doesn't even have to touch him. And the person gets real rowdy, Bouncer will touch him. Peace of, God's, peace of God will guard your heart and mind. And that's the promise. That's because the Prince of Peace, he's not timid and all meek. Come here. Let me hide you. No, he takes you to the storms. He takes you into the trials, into the tribulation. And say, you think I wasn't here, but I've been here all along. You think the peace left you, but I'm here. I'm right here with you in through the storm. Prince of Peace walks with us through it all and uh, what the bible actually reveals to us as the key to peace the bible actually tells us that the the holy spirit is the key to peace it says in three separate places galatians 5 22 says the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness and faithfulness that means that the result of you being filled and led by the spirit is peace Meaning not only do you have peace, but you become peace. Because the word of God says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You want to walk in true sonship? Get yourself some peace. And then not only get yourself peace, but become a peacemaker. Meaning that when God sends you on assignment into a missions field or into a company, and that company or, th- or that business is full of corruption. There's all kinds of panic, all kinds of fear. When you step into that place, if you are a son of God, you are a peacemaker. You walk into North Korea, you are a peacemaker. You arrive and live here in South Korea, and there's all this tension, nuclear tension, all this war tension. The country's been at war for 50 plus years. But when the people of God come, the sons of God come, and they reside here. They say, the peace of the Prince of Peace is now established in this place. And nothing that man does can take that peace away, can threaten that peace, can shake that peace. Uh, Romans fourteen seventeen says, the kingdom of God is joy, peace, and righteousness 
in the Holy Spirit. So once again, the key is the Holy Spirit. Joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom. If you listen to uh, Pastor Benjamin's recent series of, about the kingdom, he has a sermon series called The Kingdom. In one of the uh, sermons, he talks about the kingdom of God is peace in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom of God is peace in the Holy Spirit. And what he says is, he, he just brings out a simple concept. He says, the kingdom of God represents God's right to rule, to assert his rule, his authority, his reign. And when Satan attacks you with fear, anxiety, what Satan is doing is, he's not just attacking Peter Jacob, Satan is attacking Christ's kingdom. He is attacking Christ's right to rule. Because the kingdom of God is joy, peace, righteousness in the Holy Spirit. So when the people of God lose the joy of God, the peace of God that comes from being in the Holy Spirit, that is the direct result of Satan's attack on the kingdom of God. And we have to understand that this fight against fear that you're struggling with, this fight against anxiety and panic you're struggling with, is not just about you. This is about the king. This is about the prince. Because your prince has a reputation. And if you are a servant of that prince, if you are a son of that prince, if he is the prince of peace, then you are the son of that prince. You are also a son of peace. You are a peacemaker. Romans 8, 6 says, The mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can continually have peace. And I believe peace is uh, almost like a commodity that you hold. But once again, not only is it something you have, it's something you become. Because remember, Jesus is not the prince who has peace. He is the prince of peace. He is peace prince. If we put it another way. It's his nature is peace. And if that's the nature of the God you serve, of the king you serve, then that also becomes our nature. That's why the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. But one little truth that a lot of Christians seem to uh, jack up is, they think peace comes from avoiding conflict. But if you have ever studied history, you know that peace, especially when there's a bully, when there's a wicked nation around, peace never comes through avoiding conflict. You avoid conflict and eventually you get run over. Eventually you get overcome. Eventually that nation that you are ignoring, that you are hoping will not touch you, that nation that you are hoping you can just kind of, you know, that's torturing all these other nations that you are hoping you didn't have to confront. All right. One day they come and they bomb Pearl Harbor. The next thing you know, you're pulled into a conflict that you thought you could avoid. You thought you had peace during that time. But it was all a deception. In a similar way, we as Christians, we have to understand 
<clears throat> the peace of the kingdom comes and, and it advances and it, and it is established through conflict. War is what guarantees the peace. Do you understand that? Just like in the natural, a righteous nation, or at least somewhat righteous nation, if they want peace against a, a, a Khmer, Re, uh, Khmer Rouge campaign, uh, uh, Khmer Rouge government, if they want peace against Al-Qaeda, what do you got to do? Right? After 9-11, so many people were like, why do we attack Iraq? Why do we go there? There are no weapons of mass destruction. It was all deception. Well, partly is true. There was no weapons of mass destruction. But, you know, we didn't know that. So it was a simple mistake. And that's the kind of way, way I see it a little bit. It was a simple mistake. But one thing you got to recognize about what President Bush did was, because of that move, it helped secure peace for America again. You might think Iraq had nothing to do with all these terrorist networks, but you're wrong. All right? Al-Qaeda is only able to thrive because of countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. These, these governments that have no control, and they, and they, they, they kind of um, they create an environment where terrorists can thrive and prosper. And so you know, America understood that you got to go and you got to take the fight to the enemy sometimes in order to have peace in your own land. If all we do is play self-defense, let me tell you something right now. The New England Patriots do not have a Super Bowl dynasty because they play self-defense. Even when they play defense, they're on the attack. Well, now this year they're not so good on defense. But uh, on most good Super Bowl teams, right, the team does not just play defense even when they play defense, they're aggressive. Even when they're playing defense, they score touchdowns. That's how you win championships. If all you do is play one offense against the other, you know, and the offenses are pretty fairly uh, evenly aligned, you know, it's just going to go down to the last minute. But when a defense steps in and knocks the quarterback down and then the football comes out and then somebody else says, ah, look at this football! And then they run it in for a touchdown and the offense is demoralized. That's how you win championships. You, you play aggressive. That's, that's what I think the church has been missing for so long. That's why I believe God's given us a vision. The vision of our church is to raise up an army of mighty warriors. And some people are like, what kind of, what kind of church vision is that? Well, I believe it's a God-given church vision. And you come, you come to our service and you see the way we pray and you're like, why are you praying so loud? Why are y'all so angry and stuff? Why are you so aggressive here? It's not that we got a whole bunch of aggressive people. We just have a whole bunch of people that understand that the church is not a cruise ship on the way to heaven. It's a battleship stationed at the gates of hell. And while we're on this side of eternity, there's a fight to fight. But when we get to the other side, fight's all done. There's no fight. You can try to fight, and Jesus will come, probably come and slap you and stuff. <laughs> come in the flesh, you know, he'll slap you with his nail pierced hand. <laughs> he'll just slap you, and then there'll just like be a big hole. <laughs> Stop fighting! You're in heaven. 
I'm sorry, where was I? The church, man, we need to be aggressive. We need to learn from sports, man. I believe, you know, I'm more and more convinced. I've never been a big football fan until recently in my life, right? And it's kind of funny that God has to take me out of America for me to like American football. When I was in America, it's also because it's freaking, uh, the, uh, sorry about that word. Uh, I'm trying to get that out of my vocabulary. I know it's not technically a curse word, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not good for uh, public relations. Anyway, uh, in America, man, the TV stations, you know, they, they, they're terrible. So, you know, whenever there was an Eagles game, I couldn't see it. You know, they, they would televise some other game, you know, like the New York Giants. Why do I want to watch the New York Giants? I want to watch my Eagles, you know, something like that, you know. So I could never watch an Eagles game consistently so I never got into much football. But I come over here, and then they, they start a HD game pass. So you just pay like $200 a, a year, and you can watch all the Eagles games in high definition. Right, and so you know, I think some of the reasons why my eyes went so bad was because I was trying to watch sports on that on dingy standard definition TVs back in the day, interlaced dingy, dingy standard definition TVs. Anyway, now it's in HD, so I'm getting into it. And the more I watch football, the more kingdom analogies I keep getting. And I tell you right now, all right, about 95% of these analogies I keep to myself. You think I talk about it every sermon, but, I, but I'm holding back a lot. I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of amazing analogies God gives us through American football. American football is such a unique sport. It, it, you think about what a powerful analogy it is for the church, right? Why? Because you can't win a Super Bowl with, you know, 20 quarterbacks. Your team will fall apart. You need big dudes. You need short dudes. You need medium-sized dudes. And you need medium-sized dudes that are fast. You need medium-sized dudes that are strong. And the strong ones go to linebacker. The fast ones, they're defensive ends. You know? And then you need the biggest dudes, and they got to protect your quarterback. You have different parts playing different roles. And they all have to learn to hear the voice of their coach and work together and practice. And then go out and come out of the huddle. So many Christians, all we do is we huddle. The Christian Christianity has become a big huddle. Let's talk about evangelism. Let's have a conference about missions. And all we do, all the action is in the huddle. But a good team learns how to get out the huddle. Sometimes a good team doesn't even have a huddle. They go to no huddle offense. Because it's two minutes. It's hurry up. That's like, that's like the end of all things is near. That's like an end times Jesus coming back kind of urgency that the church needs to learn from. And there's so many analogies in football. But one analogy, I, all I want to give y'all today is the church has got to be aggressive. If you want peace, you got to learn how to war. If there's all kinds of dysfunction and Satan's having a field day with your family, you got to learn how to war. You got to go into the secret place and fast and pray. And Satan will ridicule you and say, ah, look at you. you. You, you're fasting. You look weaker than before. You're, your fasting is not accomplishing anything. Right? And after he says that, he goes to his friends. Like, oh! <laughs> Randy's fasting again. Let's try to cause him to stop. Let's cause him to stop. Hey, you, fasting's doing nothing for you. You know, Satan tries to deceive you because he's scared. 
scared of the weapons of the saints. Why? Because the, the Bible says, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not natural. But they're mighty through God for pulling down strongholds. You see a stronghold in your family. What the Bible is telling you is you got weapons to destroy them strongholds. And if you have the weapons, that means you also have the responsibility to destroy them. Because if you're a police officer and you got a gun. And there's a crazy criminal going around and shooting everybody. And all you do is cower in some desk, behind some desk, with your gun, with your badge, and you do nothing about it. If that hits the late night news, there is no honor for that police officer. In fact, that police officer might just lose his job. But we Christians, we have a badge. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We serve the Prince of Peace. We're, we're the sons of the Prince of Peace. And we're not only sons, we are princes ourselves. And we got a badge. And we got weapons. So when we get into our families and we see all this mess, we say, I can bring peace to this. You go, you, you see all the mess going on in Korea, and you say, my prayers can bring peace to this. All the political hype, all the political rhetoric says, you know, all this war, all this tension. That tension could be real. But God's word is truth. It's going to cut through that tension. And we're going we're gonna to see the love, joy, peace of God flow into North Korea. You know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> Man, and I was going to end with this. You know what? I'm going to end with it. Because you know what? I'm at 53 minutes. I'll just close. I'll just close. No, no, this is not. All right, I'll, I'll, I'm going to preach it anyway. <laughs> Forget this. Forget this. I'm going to just preach it. I hope you all learned something. Sorry, Larry. Man, in the new year, new year resolution number one. I'll preach a 35-minute message finally. I did good on like three Sundays. Give me some credit. All right, anyway. Um, no, don't chuck it. Don't chuck it. I want you to keep it. You're doing a great job. You've been very patient with me. Thank you. You've, you've, been, you've been a prince of peace. You know? Larry never panics. He just says, five minutes. You know? I start panicking. <laughs> oh, snap. I gotta hurry up. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think it's important to end by uh, sharing with you how do we obtain this incredible peace that is unshakable, unstealable, how do we obtain this incredible peace? How do we gain it? How was it given? And uh, the Bible says in Romans 3.24, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, in the more literal translations, it will have the word propitiation. Older translations will say expiation. The newer ones will say atonement. But let me tell you why it's important to keep the word propitiation. Because it's an English word that's kind of outdated. But it has a lot more oomph than atonement. Okay? The word propitiation refers to the removal 
of wrath by providing a substitute. Okay, it's the concept of removing wrath by providing a substitute. You see, what we have to understand is the wrath of God was not withdrawn from each and every one of you in the name of just forgiveness. God says, I love you, so I want to forgive you. So let me remove my wrath from you. That's not what happened. And for those who don't really dwell on this, you kind of overlook it and you don't understand that that's not what happened. You see, sin is not a small issue for God. Whether you have robbed a liquor store or stolen a pen, whether you have lied to your spouse about an adulterous affair, whether you've just lied on your taxes, whether you have hated someone in your heart or actually went out and murdered them, sin is not a small matter before God. And the reason why sin is such a big deal, the reason why the seriousness of sin is such a big deal to God is because the seriousness of sin rises with the dignity of the one you sin against. John Piper said it this way. He says, the creator of the universe is infinitely worthy of respect and admiration and loyalty. When think about it. He created you. He's given you life. Every good thing comes from him. Therefore, failure to love him is not trivial. It is treason. Uh, it's like this. I'll give you an example. Right now, there's a young man that's being uh, tried on court uh, for leaking highly confidential government documents to WikiLeaks. Uh, and he faces charges of treason uh, that can have a sentence of life in prison if convicted. And people are saying, what's the big deal? Why should this guy get life in prison for just leaking a few documents? All right? And you know what? When I hear the defense attorneys, I get kind of upset. And I don't care if this guy is dealing with different issues and emotional issues or whatever. He shouldn't have done it. He has signed and promised not to leak ever leak these documents. It is his responsibility as he serves our military, as he serves the U.S. military. It is his responsibility not to leak those documents. But he did anyway. What's the big deal? It's because this guy has not just leaked someone's personal email account. You have to consider the nature of the documents he leaked. You have to consider the one whom he has committed these crimes against. Think about it. The nature of the documents he leaked is not a personal email account. It is official, confidential U.S. military and government information. So what if some of that government information was hiding some war crimes and stuff like that? that, that that's beside the points. There's so much more confidential info in there that de- cannot be leaked. It, it breaches the security, not only of the America, uh, uh, United States of America, it breaches the security of many nations. So the nature of the documents he's leaked, very, very serious. But who has he committed these crimes against? He's not just committed this crime against the military or against his boss or against the U.S. government. He has committed a crime against the U.S. people. 
One, one uh, terrorist organization did a video interview. And they said, these Americans, they're not able to hold it together. They're confidential documents. So we have access to all kinds of information that's helping us to plan our next attacks. Because this, this, this one dude leaks these documents. Terrorist cells now have inside information of how to attack U.S. military points, how to attack the U.S., the United States people. I mean, this guy has committed a crime that is quite serious because of who he has committed this crime against. And therefore, I think his punishment is worthy of the crime. And in a very similar way, whether you have sinned in a small way or a big way. Sin is a big deal to God. Because of who you have sinned against. God does not just sweep your sins under a rug and says, let me forgive you. God has emotions of wrath against sin. He is angry with sin, the Bible says. You might read the Old Testament. All right. Most of the Bible will continually familiarize with you with the wrath of God against sin. And it ends with just a small section called the New Testament where it gives us good news. But most of the Bible talks about the wrath of God against sin. Why? Because it's real. And in case he, if he did it half-half, we might be like, well, maybe God didn't really mean it. No, he meant it because he uses the most of the Bible to show you that his wrath against sin is real. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So each of us, we have worked hard for our wages. And what the Bible promises is that on payday, you're going to get what you deserve. But God. But God in his love. He chose to move in such a way. To remove his wrath for sin. But not to remove it as if he's, as if he's putting it under rug. But removing it in the sense that he puts it on another. And he didn't just blame some poor dude and make him pay for and make, make him suffer and stuff like that. The substitute is provided by God himself. The Bible says in the Old Testament, it was God's will for his son to suffer. Jesus didn't suffer because a bunch of Jews got excited angry, and they carried him away. Jesus said, they don't take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. You have to understand, Jesus' life was, was not taken. Like Anti-Semitism because of the cross makes no sense, makes no theological sense. If you really want to follow that, you have anti-God. Because guess who was really responsible for the death of Jesus? It's not the Jews. It was God. God the Father is responsible for the death of his own son. Who killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. 
is the answer. And Christ, he becomes the substitute, God's only son. And the Bible says, oh, well, John Piper says, not the Bible. John Piper says, Christ does not cancel the wrath. He absorbs it and diverts it from us to himself. Therefore, God's wrath is just. It was not just withdrawn. It was spent. It was poured out. It was satisfied. And it's too many times our, as Christians, we fall into trivializing God's love. And we, we can't properly stand in all of God's love until we confront the seriousness of our sin and the justice of God's wrath against it. And it is only when, by God's grace, we get a revelation of our sin and a revelation of God's wrath and justice against sin that we can properly look upon the cross and say with 1 John 4, verse 10, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And he has given and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what propitiation means. The removal of wrath that is put upon another through the substitute of another. In love, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And then to vindicate everything that Jesus claimed and said, God raised him from the dead. And if Jesus just remained in the grave, we would have doubts about all the things he claimed and said. But God vindicates everything he has said. Vindicates his very identity by raising him from the dead. So the Bible says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because we are justified, because wrath of God poured out on his son, satisfied the requirements of God's justice, God can declare us not just forgiven. You know, the good news of the gospel is not God saying, you're forgiven. No, it's God saying, you are righteous. That's a difference. When the prodigal son comes home, if the declaration of the gospel is simply, you're forgiven. Prodigal comes home, says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father says, you're right. But you know what? I'm going to forgive you. You can come back in. That's not the gospel. When you mess up, you sin, you jack up your life, you make all kinds of stupid mistakes, you put yourself in vulnerable situations where people do stupid things to you, evil, wicked things to you, and you say, you come to your senses and let me go return to the house of my father. Let me go back to God. Let me go back to Jesus. And you come back to him. God doesn't say, you're forgiven. God says, you're righteous. You are justified before me. Well, how, can, how can that be? Let me put a ring on your finger, robe on your back, sandals on your feet, and let's start up a party back here. Because you're righteous. 
The part that doesn't make sense in that story is that story doesn't mention the cross. It's only in light of the cross the parable of the prodigal son makes any sense. Because what kind of crazy father does that? At least give him some like time out or, or ground him for a few weeks or something. What's wrong with you, you crazy father? OCD father? Lovesick father? No. It's because the cross is not mentioned in that story. The cross makes it all complete. And the Bible says, since we have been justified, we are righteous before God by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the next time that I'm preaching to myself, you're in a car. Somebody cuts you off. And you start losing your peace. Just remember how that peace was obtained for you. And perhaps you will not treat that peace with such contempt. Maybe you will not easily, so easily give it up. But you say, no. Boss, you can't take my peace. Crazy coworker, you can't touch my peace. Economy, you can't take my peace. But you didn't give it to me. The Prince of Peace gave it to me. And he is with me right now. He is with me at all times. And he has gone to the cross so that he can be called the Prince of Peace. Close our eyes and bow our heads. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. We'll, we'll close with a song. And in the earlier passage that I read in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And let me read to you the next verse. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Here's the crazy thing about the peace of God. The peace that the Prince of Peace gives you. It's supposed to increase in your life. And that increase will never know any end. It will just continue to increase and increase and increase. And we need the peace of God to increase in our lives. You know why? Because there's going to be all kinds of trouble. We're going to come through increasing trouble. The more we mature, the more God says, my son, my daughter is ready to go through and walk through some, from some new level trials. And I know that they will be unmoved. I know that they will be unshaken. Because there's an increase of trial and tribulation that Jesus has promised on the earth in the end times. Brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to stay where we are. We got to press in. We got to get filled with the Holy Spirit. We got to remember the cross and the price that it took for us to have that peace. And we got to hold on to that peace. And we got to guard that peace just as that peace guards us. We got to learn to treasure and let that peace increase. Upon our hearts. 
of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Let's all stand to our feet. I want us just to worship and give praise and glory to the Prince of Peace.